Welcome back to The Shorter, a podcast on The Shorter Catechism where two pastors take 20-something minutes to confess their way through the 107 questions of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. I'm your host, Tommy Park, and I'm joined by my co-host, Stephen Spinnenweber. Welcome back to the podcast, everybody. I'm still waiting for my promotion from co-host to host, or from your, your being host, your demotion from host to co-host, but I'll still wait. So we are here today, uh, excited to pick back up with our conversation through the Shorter Catechism. We do hope that this sparks conversations with you, your family, friends, over this wonderful document that we all confess. And today, we have as a guest to the podcast, Professor Mike Galotto from RTS Orlando, who for 20 years has taught biblical studies, preaching, practical theology, and hermeneutics at RTS Orlando. And today, we've got Professor Galotto here to discuss with us question 24 on how Jesus executes the office of a prophet. Professor Galotto, thanks so much for being here. Thank you uh, for having me on the show. It's good to be with you, Tommy, regional manager, and uh, Stephen, assistant to the regional manager. Yes, um, I'm itching for that promotion, and I do love the fact that you just dropped that reference. Uh, Professor Galoto, so I already know something about you that I like very much. You're an office fan. Uh, additionally, we want to ask some questions, some introductory questions, so that way our podcast listeners get to know you a little bit. So we'd love to know about your family, uh, your call to ministry, and particularly your work at RTS Orlando there. Oh, glad to share that. Um, I come from Southern Illinois near, uh, near St. Louis. I went to the University of Illinois, the number one COVID testing site in the country these days, and uh, worked uh, for a brief uh, few years in business before uh, sensing a call to ministry. So um, I became an ordained minister in my mid to late 20s, uh, and uh, after further studies at Covenant Seminary and Westminster Seminary, I was invited to come to Orlando and teach at what was a very young campus of Reformed Seminary at the time. I met and married a school teacher in the singles group that I was the director of in St. Louis. I had a no dating policy that I made an exception to once. <clears throat> um, Vicki's a really a great school teacher. She's been a great mother and uh, she teaches in a Christian school here in Orlando. I have two children that are now making their way in the world. One works for uh, Yale University School of Music and Administration. And the other works for my son, works for uh, a major defense industry uh, contractor here in Orlando. So I guess we did a pretty good job since we have uh, children on the extremes of work environments. Um, I uh, have taught Old Testament, New Testament, as you said. My primary areas these days are preaching, which I've done a fairly long period of time, pastoral ministry, and um, uh, preaching. Did I say preaching? And uh, I like to spend time with students because I, I, I think um, uh, ministry development is more than just the classroom exercise. And I work with churches a lot. I help churches sometimes when they're in transition or sometimes when they're trying to figure things out. Um, I did spend six years as uh, the chief executive of a denomination called the Evangelical Presbyterian Church. It kind of overlaps with PCA <clears throat> somewhat. Uh, I'm probably kind of in the middle of that Venn diagram in terms of my own views and practices. And uh, I love what you're doing because 
Um, I think one of the things that really struck me early on as I began to learn about the Reformed faith was how the Reformed faith expresses itself in ways that are intended to help us grow as Christians and help the church mature into the fullness of the stature of Christ. So uh, because of my pragmatic background in business and administration, but also my theoretical background in in, in teaching, I, it's sort of been my lifelong ambition to be kind of a, I guess, standing at the crossroads of of theory and practice because um, that's where healthy Christian life is has, has to be rooted and grounded. That's excellent. So you're Presbyterian, and we as Presbyterians get all excited about the Shorter Catechism. Maybe you weren't excited when you first heard of the Shorter Catechism. I was daunted by it. Uh, but my experience is not universal. So tell us how you came to know about the Westminster Shorter Catechism. It was really pretty easy. I was uh, raised in a Bible-believing Christian home in a mainline church where there were some people who believed the Bible. And, <laughs> and then I had some exposure to a campus ministry in college that was very Bible-centered, even though it wasn't Reformed in its theology. Uh, and I was, uh, had joined a Presbyterian church in St. Louis, Central Presbyterian Church, and uh, I made good friends with another uh, youth group's uh, volunteer leader, and he mentioned something to me about the Westminster Confession of Faith and Catechisms. And I said, what's that? And so we got a catalog uh, called Puritan Reform Discount Book Service at the time, and we ordered me a copy. It was that facsimile edition of the Westminster Standards. And uh, so I opened it up, started reading it and reading the proof text. And just like learning the Reformed faith, it was just really easy for me because it was just saying what the Bible said. So it seemed to me. So I didn't have one of those hard entries. I didn't have to be persuaded away from something else. And um, I read the, the catechism with the sum of saving knowledge and all these other practical documents that are, are less known. And so it was just a simple entree into the, 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 the systemization of the Christian life for me. And uh, and, uh, you know, subsequently, when my wife and I had children, we taught our children the catechism. And, and so uh, while we haven't been um, trying to be poster children for catechism families, we've found it a healthy and fruitful source of spiritual formation for us as a family. Do you have a favorite shorter catechism question? Well, probably like all of your guests they, who try to cheat and give more than one. There have been a lot of cheaters on this podcast, yes. Right. Sure. I, I could take uh, question 23 about the three offices of Christ, both in his estate of humiliation and exaltation. I think that's a, such a beautiful visual representation of Christ's ministry. Question 88 on the means of grace, uh, which relates to our subject for today. But I try not to pick that one because I'm a professional. I teach preaching, and I, you know I think we all need to lean away from our specializations in order to be whole, fully developed human beings. For some reason, eighty-seven landed with me in a certain way when I first memorized it as part of seminary and repentance unto life, because I find it's so beautiful. Because repentance unto life is a saving grace that is intended to be exercised our whole life long. And so repentance isn't something you check off before you, you know, get your eternal life uh, promise. Repentance unto life is, is part of the ongoing Christian experience uh, where we turn from our sin with a grief and hatred of it, and we endeavor after a new obedience 
you know, there's no sanctification without repentance. Uh, faith does not find it uh, a necessary object unless there's a sorrow for sin. You know, 2 Corinthians 7, where Paul describes how he made the Corinthians sorrowful by his severe letter, is such a beautiful depiction of, I mean, there, there's a sorrow unto death, Paul says, but there is this godly sorrow that leads to life. And so uh, I think I would have to, if, I, if compelled to choose, Stephen, I would say 87 is probably uh, pretty high in my list. Ding, 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 ding. That is my favorite. You got the right answer. <laughs> We're Look fist at that. bumping audio. Of, of 107, we narrowed that down. Tommy, you are on the outskirts, friend. Um, Sorry. But I, I do have to pass this on to you. You get your questions now. So thanks, well, Dr. Glotto. Well, today we're discussing one of those offices that you mentioned there in the question 23, I believe. But question 24 talks about Jesus serving as a prophet. Uh, and I'll read it real quick just so that our listeners will know. Uh, question 24, and the answer reads like this. How doth Christ execute the office as a prophet? Christ executeth the office of a prophet and revealing to us by his word and spirit the will of God for our salvation. So first, uh, Professor Glotto, this whole idea of a prophet, uh, I would assume, sounds weird uh, to a lot of our listeners. And it could be just, you know, not being familiar with it, but also maybe, you know, if they stayed up too late too often, they, uh, they see so many self-proclaimed prophets uh, in our world today. So first, can you explain to us maybe what is a prophet? What's the role of a prophet in the Old Testament? How is that role of the Old Testament different from the role of Christ as our prophet? And how are they mm. similar? So I know there's a lot there. I just gave yeah. you a Yeah, no, um, I think that's really a good place to start with this question because uh, we think of prophets as be those who give us prophecy, which we think of prophecy as somehow predicting the future or telling us things we wouldn't know. While that does happen among the Old Testament prophets, it's minimal. What, what the prophets usually are doing is expounding God's prior revelation, calling God's people to faithfulness, warning them of the curses of the law if they continue to disobey it, and reminding them of the blessings of, of his covenant if they will turn and come back to him. And so uh, the prophets are really preachers in that respect. They're preaching prior revelation. That's, that's the message of the prophets. And, and they, all, they all derive or descend, if you will, from Moses, who uh, you know, was the leader of God's people coming out of Egypt. He was called by God in the wilderness by the burning bush. But Deuteronomy 13 and Deuteronomy 18 tell God's people for the rest of the Old Testament, they are to measure anybody who comes forward as a prophet by Moses as the prophet par excellence. And uh, it's done in terms of uh, uh, testing the message of the prophets, particularly if the, any prophet tells them to go after another god. But there's also a, real, a word in those passages uh, that describes Moses and the prophets who come after him as brothers or neighbors, meaning they are from the people. So prophets expound God's covenant by calling people to faithfulness to his word. True prophets are people of character. Uh, they are, their, their, their character is to be consistent with the character of God. And so you'll see routinely in the Old Testament, prophets are called into the presence of God and, uh, and commissioned uh, to be his representatives. And they are uh, 
they are people who are godlike in their character. On occasion, you have false prophets, but they typically experience some pretty bad things. Uh, we don't have the immediacy of God's judgment today uh, that false prophets were to experience in the Old Testament, but we still can measure people who claim to be prophets by their character. And, 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 and Old Testament prophets were neighbors. They were from among the people. They, they weren't some stranger on a flat screen. They weren't even somebody on a jumbotron inside a sanctuary. But they were people that God's people knew and knew their character. And so if we were to draw any lessons from that, we, we should insist that anybody who claims to be a prophet today must be somebody of true character, godly character, somebody who is known, whose life is seen into. And unfortunately, the people who claim to be prophets today often are people who are, have hidden lives and who take advantage of people, including and especially things like QAnon, where nobody even knows who the prophet is and can't be subjected to, um, to any kind of test. But that's not even a biblical thing, so we don't need to talk about that. We've got QAnon and we've got The Office. This is already an epic episode. <laughs> so why would the catechism you know, put Christ in this role? So how is, he, how is Christ kind of fulfilling that role uh, as prophet? Well, it's, first of all, we need a prophet. We need prophets. Uh, in, in all of God's activity toward human beings, we see God's desire to be known. Even when God creates and creates human beings, it is out of a desire to be known, to reveal himself. So creation reveals God's attributes, and then even in the Imago Dei, the image of God in every human being, there is something reflected of God. The problem is, in the fall, that ability to understand how God is revealing himself is disrupted. It's uh, in, in, in our minds, in our abilities to uh, understand, but also in our hearts, our corrupted wills, uh, we don't see God's revelation in human beings and in creation correctly. And so God gives prophets, God, Abraham's even called a prophet going back that far in the Old Testament. And so prophets are necessary means by which God reveals himself to us, which was God's purpose from the very beginning to be known, worshiped and loved by his creatures. So sin is probably the biggest reason, but just God's overall desire to be known is kind of the all-encompassing uh, purpose of prophets. Now, that, that leads to the, you know, the, the, the purpose of Jesus as a prophet, which is kind of the next thing we're going to talk about, Tommy. I, I don't want to jump in too far ahead, but if it's okay, I'll kind of jump into that as well. Yeah, no, jump, 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 so, jump. So, um, <clears throat> you know, the problem with the Old Testament prophets is not, it's not only a qualification that they were from among the people, but that was probably also at times a limitation. Uh, so no prophet is perfect, and uh, even though inspired by the Holy Spirit, speaking God's word, especially as it's inscripturated in the Old Testament, we are still seeing bits and pieces. Hebrews 1 says that in times past, God made himself known by various, I think one way of thinking of it is different modes and different measures in different ways, but also in different uh, degrees. But Hebrews 1 goes on to say, in these final days, God has spoken to us in his son. Uh, the final word of God is Jesus Christ. And, and, uh, and so Jesus is the revelation of God to us, the final and full revelation. He's not correcting the Old Testament, but he is manifesting the full meaning of the Old Testament. 
Christ reveals to us the will of God. Now, part of this, and it's it's in that catechism phrase, the will of God for our salvation. Part of this, Tommy and Stephen, is I think getting straight on what it means to know the will of God. Because uh, if you say something about knowing the will of God, more times than not, the average Christian is going to think about trying to know the hidden will of God, uh, trying to figure out, like, who should I marry? What job should I take? When should I move? Should I move? Those kind of things. Which car should I buy? Uh, should I take the right turn here or go straight? And hit, will I catch the light or not? I mean, uh, that's just kind of human nature to want to know kind of the secret script of what's going on in life. Deuteronomy 29, 29 is really important for that. It says, uh, and, Moses, and Moses wrote, the hidden things belong to the Lord, but these things he has given to you that you might walk in them, you and your children. So God has revealed the will which he desires us to make known. And to, to ask for the hidden will of God is in some ways to dis, despise the revealed will of God. The hidden things belong to the Lord. To God's glory and his praise, he has ultimately and finally revealed himself in Jesus Christ. And uh, he, he does that in a <clears throat> couple of ways we can think of. One is in the teaching of Jesus. When Jesus teaches about the nature of God, God's purposes, and God's desire and commands for our life, he is the final interpreter. If you, th- if you think about the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus said, you have heard it said, but I say to you, he's, he's really presenting himself as the full and final authority of God's will. He is comparing his teaching to that of the, 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 the religious teachers of Israel and, and saying he is the authoritative teacher. In his teaching, he says things like, uh, uh, if you build your house on the, the rock, which uh, is a way of uh, saying, if you listen to these words of mine and do them, uh, that, that you'll stand. Jesus uh, taught from the Old Testament constantly, giving us the full and final interpretation of the Old Testament for us. And, you know, the Old Testament, as we all know from our training and as we desire to to, to teach and preach in our ministries, that we don't know the full sense of Scripture until we see it in light of the person of work and, and work of Christ. So Christ's teaching is how he carries out his prophetic ministry, but he also carries out his prophetic ministry by his person. In the book of Exodus, we see Moses being given an opportunity to ask God for something, and he wants to see God's glory, and God's response is, no one can see my face and live. But God gives Moses a glimpse of his glory. And it's it's said of Moses in the Old Testament that uh, Moses, God spoke to Moses as a man speaks to a friend. But even still, Moses wore a veil when he came out of the, from the presence of God and the, the, the glory of God was veiled under the old covenant. But John 1 tells us that Jesus has come from the very lap, if you will, the traditional translations say, come from the very bosom of the Father. In other words, what Moses longed to see Jesus Christ was. And that's why uh, John 1.14 says that the glory has become flesh and dwelt among us. It was Jesus incarnate. So Jesus' person also is a part of his prophetic work 
because he, in saying he who has seen me has seen the Father, and also uh, Jesus' person is part of his prophetic work in that he shows us what a really, truly, fully human person is like. He is a picture of what man and woman were made to be in the beginning, happy and holy, as the children's catechism says. And when we look at Jesus and what he did and how he treated people, we are taught about what God's will is for our lives as well. No, that's very helpful, especially the piece of, you know, as me doing college ministry, the, you know, when you were talking about, you know, who should I marry? Should I change my, you know, that's like my daily conversations, which are highly important, you know, and by the same time being reminded that we do have a, a revealed will that has been given to us clearly through the scriptures that addresses our ultimate problem. Uh, and that's kind of how do we become right with God? And yeah. And, and, and um, and in 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 us being fully human ourselves, God God doesn't give us like a checklist of a to do list for the day. He equips us as thinking, sentient creatures with wills that are to be exercised. And so he he reveals his character and his his providential care for us and all these things, uh, and dignifies us by commissioning us to figure out a lot of things in life from his word. That's what wisdom is, uh, capital W, wisdom, you know, like from the book of Proverbs. And Jesus is, of course, the wisdom of God, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1 tells us. So uh, it's, it's actually dehumanizing to give someone a checklist, but it is dignifying to say, here is my revealed will, here is my character, now go and make a difference in your own life and make a difference in the world by conforming to the revealed will I've given you. Yeah, and maybe, you know, kind of turning a little practical, you know, because as I think about this conversation of Christ being our prophet, you know, a couple things that come to my mind is preaching, and I think you alluded to that earlier, mm-hmm. um, but also like Bible reading. So, so how about, you know, how does, you know, for example, how does preaching come into play as Christ being our prophet and other practical? Yeah, that's, that's a really important question, especially from a Reformed podcast and from a Reformed perspective. Here, here's my kind of simplest way of, of explaining it. In John 10, that's the Good Shepherd passage. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. And in that context, he says, I have sheep not of this fold who will also hear my voice. So here's a, here's a weird question. How are people going to hear Jesus speak after he's gone from the earth, after he's exalted to heaven? Well, Paul tells us in Romans 10, I mean, there are other places the New Testament says this. It's most clear in Romans 10. Uh, he says, Paul says in Romans 10, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord would be saved. But then he asks, how's that going to happen? And he sets up this chain of causes that leads to the point of hearing Jesus speak. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word that Christ himself speaks. And that's how we're to understand that phrase in Romans 10, 17. And uh, one of the links in that chain is how, how are they going to hear, how are they going to hear Jesus speak without a preacher or without someone preaching? And how are they going to hear someone preach unless someone is sent? So there you have the distinctive Reformed em- emphasis on the preaching of the Word, that when people are sent to preach the Word of God, it's not just that we hear about God, but we hear Christ himself speak. There's a lot goes into this word sent, but how we should understand that is 
the church tests, measures, and trains people to speak God's word on Christ's behalf. And so I know, Tommy, you're doing a lot of work on the subject of ordination, but that's, that's one of the things that ordination as a minister is supposed to mean most, that somebody is qualified in character and qualified in competencies to make known God's will as revealed in Christ through the scriptures. So that when, a, when Joe and Jane Christians sit down in, in, a, in a worship service or where they, whether they wander by while somebody is open air preaching on the campus, wherever it is, they have some confidence that the person who speaks uh, is speaking for God himself. If people don't fit that in character and competency, if they haven't been sent by the church lawfully and prudentially preparing and sending someone, they shouldn't listen to that kind of person. But on the positive side, it means when the church sets someone apart to preach the word of God to God's people, they can rely upon that voice in the preaching of the word uh, for God to speak to them and speak into their lives. Professor Glodo, it's interesting that, that Romans 10, 14 that you're quoting from, and how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? That's the ESV rendering, but there's yes. a footnote. Yeah. How are they to believe in him whom they have never heard? And that's bringing the preacher and Christ that much more in unison that he yeah. is speaking, that Christ is speaking through the preached word. Because um, that's the next question. That's that's the next one point because I mean that's part of the argument there, right, Stephen? That, uh, but I think that even to go farther, it's um, the whom there. It's not uh, believing in whom. It's really should be believing whom. How are you going to believe Jesus? Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word which Christ Himself speaks. Isn't just about believing in Jesus, but it's believing Jesus Himself. That when Jesus says. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. When Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life, everything that Jesus says are things we believe because we believe him. And so it's a very tight, and you and I know this because we've, we've looked at it's a very tight argumentation. The popular translations don't necessarily get at it, but um, I'm sure you all can uh, respond to your listeners or even refer them to me if they'd like a more full explanation of this. Uh, that's really helpful, Professor Glodo, and we might be uh, sending people your way, so get ready. A uh, lot of good stuff we talked about today about profit, and just was curious, is there a resource or a handful of resources that you would direct our listeners to if they wanted to learn more about this office of profit and shameless plug, uh, you preaching, whatever, tell us one of the books that if you were to say you pick up a book or, you know, so a resource by Mike Glodo, what would it be? Uh, there are some uh, some articles I have out on the web. You can rummage around for them. Uh, there's a two-part article called In Defense of the Ass. Uh, it was published on Reformation 21 uh, a few years ago. It's two parts, and it talks about why sitting and listening to somebody talk constitutes hearing God speak, as opposed to sitting around in a circle and sharing or 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 going to church on Sunday morning and just, you know, kind of having a dialogue. Uh, so in defense of the ass is uh, a piece out there I've written. Uh, there's another piece that was published by your denominational, I'm sorry, not your denominational, another denomination's 
There's a piece out there that was published by another denomination's uh, magazine called Sola Ecclesia that talks about the importance of the church in the Christian life. And it's not directly on the subject of preaching, but I think it, if you read that article, you'll see how it pitches us toward if we want to hear God speak, if we want to know God, it has to happen in the context of the church. That's God's normal way. I would say, in general, uh, look at Shorter Catechism 90 about how we are to hear the Word, and you'll probably have a podcast on that. So it's important to listen in a certain way when we listen to preaching. Uh, we should look at the passages on the Holy Spirit, especially John 14 and John 16, to understand that we must ask God, we must pray God, pray to God to be good hearers by the help of the Holy Spirit when we hear teaching and preaching. And, uh, and then I would say just on a very practical level, besides resources, just thinking about preaching like we think about food. I know we all love to, you know, whoop it up with, uh, you know, really, really rich and exciting food, but that's not how our mamas fed us and made us grow up into big people. Uh, just like the food we eat, we should care about the preaching we listen to. Uh, preaching it needs to be healthy and sound more than it needs to be entertaining. And it's probably important to say, too, that it's better to hear that preaching from people we know and can see and who can see us than filling ourselves with, even if it's good preaching, that we, somebody we'll never know, we'll never meet, we don't know anything about. Long for it. First Peter 2 talks about longing for the pure spiritual milk of the word. And find that in a church, uh, not in a fun church or podcast, but in a sound church. And if you do these things, what you'll find is you'll be leaning forward into the hearing of God's word. You'll be, you'll be expecting God to speak to you. And, and um, that posture is, it's sort of like the, what the woman at the well said when she ran back to her village. And she said, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Because I think if, if you've never had that experience, that's something to long for that and I have vivid memories of times in my Christian life. I went to church expecting that God would say something to me through his minister because his minister was proclaiming his word in a faithful and convicting way. Uh, thank you for that, Professor Glado, because maybe you are like a little prophet. Because I was thinking, how can I phrase the question of like, you know, preaching in our modern day, especially as you know, the tide has turned a little bit with COVID and everything getting moved online and, you know, even my own students, you know, I'm just going to watch my pastor back at home kind of mindset, you know, um, just the importance of a hearing good preaching, but also knowing the preacher uh, who preaches and how those two go hand in hand. Yeah. I think a good, a good maximum for our day is if I can't smell you, you're not my friend. <laughs> And um, that's just a kind of a, a distilled version of my ecclesiology, <laughs> my doctrine of the church. This is good wisdom. This is prophetic, truly. Uh, if I can't smell you, uh, we're not close <laughs> enough. So, <laughs> Professor Gloda, thanks so much for making time for us today. Uh, we sincerely appreciate all your insights and uh, hope to talk to you again soon. Thank you so much, Stephen and Tommy. Love you, brothers, and appreciative of your your work uh, faithfully uh, doing the very thing we've been talking about. 
Oh, thank you. And thanks to all of our listeners. We are looking forward to getting together with you again and continuing to talk on the offices that Christ executes as our prophet, priest, and king. Until we meet next time, keep it short. How does Christ execute the office of a prophet? Christ executes the office of a prophet in revealing to us by His Word and Spirit the will of God for our salvation. How does Christ execute the office of a prophet? Christ executes the office of a prophet in revealing to us by His Word and Spirit the will of God for our salvation.